Hello there. Thank you for tuning into Background History. It's our very first episode, as it turns out, actually. Today, you and I are going to be talking about how absolute power is able to be concentrated in the hands of a single person, what allows them to reign supreme without being ripped apart by the mobs, and what factors can ultimately lead to their downfall. Edward Gibbon begins chapter 5 of the first volume of The Decline and Fall by stating, quote, The power of the sword is more sensibly felt in an extensive monarchy than in a small community. It has been calculated by the ablest politicians that no state, without being soon exhausted, can maintain above the hundredth of its members in arms in idleness. It is impossible, he says, for the advantages of military science and discipline to be exerted, unless a proper number of soldiers are united into one body and actuated by one soul. With a handful of men, such a union would be ineffectual. With an unwieldy host, it would be impractical. The tyrant of a small town would soon discover that a hundred armed followers were a weak defense against ten thousand peasants or citizens, but a hundred thousand well-disciplined soldiers will command with despotic sway tens of millions of subjects." End quote. It seems pretty counterintuitive at first, but then again, so does the idea of a single dictator utterly dominating a citizen body in the millions. According to Gibbon, in order to subjugate an entire race of people, a ruler simply requires a relatively small band of loyal men to ruthlessly carry out their will. Interestingly enough, not only does Gibbon stress just how small this faithful cabal of men needs to be, he flatly argues that no ruler can maintain a military body larger than that of one one-hundredth of its population. So in a nation of a million people, you couldn't expect to see an army larger than just 10,000. Now take the United States, for example. Out here, there are an estimated one and a half million active service members in the United States military, give or take. Not counting reserve members, that's about 0.4% of the current population. So then how are such men not overthrown as soon as a greater population realizes that it's well within their power to do so? Well, to attempt to find an answer to this, let's go back to the year 192, when the Roman Emperor Commodus was just murdered in his private bath by an agent of several disgruntled politicians. Commodus was much despised by the Roman people, or at least by the aristocracy, so his memory was damned. A distinguished, well-respected, and fantastically named soldier named Pertinax would take his place. However, unhappy with the increase in discipline and cut in pay that Pertinax ordered, the emperor's private bodyguards, an elite group of warriors known as the Praetorian Guards, slew Pertinax and auctioned off the title of emperor to the highest bidder. Imagine that. The wealthy opportunist who took advantage of the situation was a man named Didius Julianus. Word quickly spread of this egregious breach of civic virtue throughout the empire, and it didn't take long to reach the ears of the main character of our story today, Septimius Severus. Born in modern-day Libya in the year 145, young Septimius Severus didn't seem likely to be remembered for very long at all. His father held no major office, and his home city of Leptis Magna was far from the bustling metropolis of Rome, but he apparently excelled in the art of public speaking and was full of ambition, so his family sent him away to Italy to begin his public career. Things started off relatively slowly for young Severus, but he was able to slowly but surely climb the social ladder, holding first a number of relatively unimportant bureaucratic jobs in the government before taking on worthier and more prestigious positions. He survived the brutal reign of Commodus, and in 191, just a year before Commodus's death, the now 46-year-old Severus was made governor of the heavily garrisoned border province of Pannonia Superior. Now, this is when things began to really happen for Severus, because immediately upon hearing about the death of Pertinax and the bribery of the Praetorians, Severus packed up most of his army and headed directly for Rome to challenge the rule of Didius Julianus. He knew that other generals would have the same thought, but that none of them were as close to Rome as he was. 
Severus knew an opportunity when he saw one. Upon arriving at Rome with an army that outnumbered anything even remotely near the city, it didn't take long for the Praetorians to shift their loyalties once again. The bodyguards beheaded Julianus and proclaimed Severus the new emperor of Rome. And not because it holds much weight to the point that I'm making, and really only because I love this section of the decline and fall, here's how Gibbon describes Severus deciding the fate of the treacherous Praetorians. Quote, before the new emperor entered Rome, Severus issued his commands to the Praetorian guards, directing them to wait his arrival on a large plain near the city without arms, but in the habits of ceremony in which they were accustomed to attend their sovereign. He was obeyed by these haughty troops, whose contrition was the effect of their just terrors. A chosen part of the Illyrian army encompassed them with leveled spears. Incapable of flight or resistance, they expected their fate in silent consternation. Severus mounted the tribunal, sternly reproached them with perfidy and cowardice, dismissed them with the ignominy for the trust that they had betrayed, despoiled them of their splendid ornaments, and banished them on pain of death to the distance of a hundred miles from the capital. During the transaction, another detachment had been sent to seize their arms, occupy their camp, and prevent the hasty consequences of their despair. End quote. I love Edward Gibbon. After banishing the Praetorians and installing himself as the new emperor, Severus held a great funeral for Pertinax, where he spoke of how unjustly the empire had lost such a decent and good emperor. Then, after the requisite amount of public displays of mourning had taken place, Severus let the reality of a situation set in. He was the emperor, and he had done it. From his seat on the Palatine Hill, Severus could look over the eternal city that he was now master of. This was the city that controlled everything from England to Egypt, and he was its master. All it took was a display of force, and not a single drop of blood had to be spilled, other than Didius Julianus. But then the really real reality of a situation set in. The remaining generals in the empire weren't just going to accept Severus as their master without a fight, and why would they? They had just as much of a right to be on the throne as he, and they commanded even bigger armies. And so this began the large-scale civil wars of the 190s. Severus would fight two wars before he truly controlled all of Rome— one against a general from the east of the empire that would see the utterly brutal sacking of Byzantium and the slaughter of its inhabitants by Severus, and another against a general from the northwest of the empire that had led to one of the largest and bloodiest battles ever fought by Rome. Okay, now let's leave Severus here and take a step back, because after Lugdunum, which was the battle I just spoke about, in 197, he would fully control the entire empire until his death in 211. So what's happened since the death of Commodus in 192? These stories tend to be romanticized quite a bit, so let's take a look at this tale as objectively as we can. In 192, the Emperor of Rome was assassinated, then in 193, his successor was assassinated, then his successor was assassinated, and a civil war erupted that saw hundreds of thousands of people die. Probably. I'm kind of just making that statistic up, but it sounds right. At least thousands. And let's not pretend like this was just some war for the ideals of the Roman Empire, where the people were fighting tyranny in order to replace it with something more just. This was a war for personal glory. Okay, again, I'm just going to let Gibbon explain it. Quote, The civil wars of modern Europe, and again, when he says modern Europe, he means Europe in the 18th century, because he's writing in the 1700s. The civil wars of modern Europe have been distinguished not only by fierce animosity, but likewise by the obstinate perseverance of the contending factions. They've generally been justified in some principle, or at least colored by some pretext of religion, of freedom, or of loyalty. The leaders were nobles of independent property and hereditary influence. The troops fought like men interested in the decision of the quarrel. 
and his military spirit and party zeal were strongly diffused throughout the entire community, a vanquished chief was immediately supplied with new adherents eager to shed blood for the same cause. But the Romans, after the fall of the Republic, combated only for the choice of new masters. Under a standard of popular candidate for the empire, few enlisted from affection, some from fear, many from interest, but none from principle, end quote. None from principle. That's so amazing because this was an era before the Bill of Rights or the Declaration of the Rights of Man. These were soldiers fighting for money and power of their own and respect and not really much else. So then why did the people of the empire put up with civil war after civil war if they were being fought for the glory of just a single man? Well, let's get back to my original point. I mean, if Rome were just some small city-state, it's doubtful that this kind of hubris would have been put up with for long, and indeed it wasn't, as a republic was formed after the king of the city of Rome was dethroned for proving his ineptitude and vanity. But this was a different time, and Rome was no longer a city-state, it was an empire. And it was certainly easier to be a glory-hungry emperor of a multinational empire than it was to be a glory-hungry king of a city-state. And let's be honest, all of the soldiers who died in the civil wars of the 190s died because Severus was paying them, not because they thought him the best man for the job. Cities held out against his push for empire, and some even for a couple years. But like Byzantium, they were eventually snuffed out once the emperor had a chance to bring the full force of his army into their direction. So even though Severus never controlled an army that was bigger than one one-hundredth of the citizen body of the entire empire, he was able to utterly crush all opposition and instill just enough of an aura of invincibility around himself that he was never able to be dethroned. And this exact same scenario has played out an uncountable number of times throughout history, not just in Rome, obviously, but in Persia, Germany, America, China, and every other country or empire that's ever existed. To rule triumphant against all opposition, you really don't need to be able to meet every threat that could possibly come your way. You don't need power to subjugate even a fraction of the entire population. The great secret to holding on to power is that aura of invincibility we just spoke about. As long as the illusion of being unstoppable is in place, a king or a dictator can rule without rebellion pretty much until the end of their days, no matter how much the populace despises them. But it really isn't fair to say that everybody in the Roman Emperor despised or hated our friend Severus, and in fact most of them probably loved him by the end of the wars for just bringing peace for a sustained period, even though he did cause a lot of the unrest to begin with. But, in modern times, he's certainly remembered as one of the best emperors of the entire era. Alright, so to wrap up my thoughts, I'm just going to end with a small divergence from our story to bring up a tale that sums up today's talk perfectly. In the middle of the 2nd century AD, when the empire was at its peak, a man named Antoninus Pius ruled Rome. He's, we'll be talking a lot more about Antoninus Pius because he's one of my favorite emperors. He's written about very little because during his reign, the empire was entirely at peace and there wasn't really much to record. But of course, we're going to end today with a quote from Gibbon that pretty much sums all of this up. Quote, Antoninus diffused tranquility and order over the greatest part of the earth. His reign is marked by the rare advantage of furnishing very few materials for history, which, after all, is just little more than the register of crimes, follies, and misfortunes of mankind. Alright, so usually now would be the point in a podcast when you hear the podcaster talk about where you can find them on other social media, where to follow them, what to do, blah blah blah, but I actually don't have any of that set up right now, so hopefully next time I'll be able to waste a little bit of your time right at the end and I'll be able to go over a Twitter or a Facebook or something like that where you can all find me and learn about more updates on when we're going to have more episodes. But until then, I just have to say thank you so much for listening. 
Um, obviously, I'm still ironing out some of the kinks because this is the first episode. But hey, look at that. We got an episode done. It's under our belts. So until the next time we talk, I just got to say thank you for listening. This has been fantastic. Uh, if you've got any suggestions or comments or you just want to hassle me or send me some weird stuff, suggestions on other episodes I could do, go ahead and email backgroundhistoryinfo at gmail.com. That's background spelled like backgroundhistoryinfo at gmail.com. So until we speak again, thank you guys so much for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode.